Uh, as our brother Josh mentioned, uh, my name is Joshua McLaren. I'm a pastoral assistant at Wellsboro Bible Church. I'm married to my lovely wife, Lydia. We've been married for almost four years. We have our daughter, Willow. She's almost two. Obviously, they would normally travel with me, but my travel companions are not Lydia and Willow this morning. Uh, Kai and Austin are two dear brothers from Wellsboro Bible. They've graciously come and traveled with me uh, to open God's word with you this morning. Uh, I'm pursuing my MDiv at the, Ma- uh, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary out of Louisville, Kentucky. Um, it's been a fun a couple of years and a fun couple of years that will be coming up so I'm thankful for that education. I met Pastor Derek probably three years ago uh, and we met at a pastor's gathering in Williamsport and since then I've been very thankful uh, to be able to get to know him and uh, just be encouraged by him. If you can believe it he actually went camping uh, a couple well I was asked last year he went camping in the woods in a tent uh, with myself and two other pastors, and uh, it was just a really formative time just to get to know him and even learn from him. He probably doesn't even remember that this conversation happened, but he was talking about the difference between worldly encouragement and biblical encouragement, and that conversation really struck me, and I'm just really thankful that it happened. Wellsboro Bible Church considers it an honor to partner with you as Uh, sister churches seeking to see the gospel go forth. So I want you to know that we are praying for you as a congregation. We are encouraged by the outreach through evangelism and church planning and discipleship that you guys are doing. And it is just a privilege to be here and to open God's word with you. So if you would, please open your copy of God's word to Isaiah 52. If you're using the Pew Bibles, I believe they're in on page 613. 613. So Isaiah chapter 52. Isaiah chapter 52, I will be reading from verse 13. Before I get there, uh, we are continuing a series leading up to the resurrection, uh, Resurrection Sunday, the road to Passion Week. And you all have been going through Old Testament passages that have looked to, prophesied about, pointed to the Lord Jesus. I think that is such a neat way to prepare for his death and resurrection. What a cool thing. And I'm so thankful to be here to consider Isaiah 52 with you in 53 this morning. Augustine called Isaiah 53 not a prophecy, but a gospel. Not a prophecy, but a gospel. Polycarp, a second century martyr, said it was the golden passional of the Old Testament. And then the great reformer Martin Luther said that every Christian ought to be able to repeat it by heart. Clearly, this passage is important. So let's dive in, see for ourselves why. Look with me at Isaiah 52, starting in verse 13. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? 
For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression in judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Let us pray and ask God's blessing over the study of his word this morning. Our Father in heaven, we come before you as a people wanting to know you, longing to behold beautiful things out of your word. We want to see Jesus. As we study Isaiah 53, I pray that your spirit would reveal to us Christ. This beautiful humbling prophecy. Lord, open our hearts and our minds to understand and perceive the truth. Help me as I preach. Move us out of the way. Move me out of the way. Would you increase that we would all decrease and cause us to walk in obedience in light of what we learned this morning. It's in the name of our Lord Jesus we pray. Amen. So by show of hands, uh, how many of you have heard the song, In Christ Alone? In Christ alone. Do you sing it as a congregation? Yeah, it's a beautiful song. Uh, it's a popular modern hymn written by Stuart Townend and Keith and Kristen Getty. And I'm not sure if you knew or not, but in 2013, it was the center of a very unfortunate uh, controversy. The Presbyterian Church USA was putting together a new hymnal, and they wanted to include In Christ Alone. However, the hymnal committee had 
one tweak they wanted to make to a verse. Two words. That's all that would be changed. Two simple words. In fact, the committee had seen the lyric already changed in a previously published Baptist hymnal, a change the composers had no idea about, so they decided to go for it. The committee reached out to Townend and the Giddies, and to their surprise, the composers refused to allow the verse to be changed. The committee wanted to change the verse to when on that cross, as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. And that seems reasonable, right? Certainly God's love for sinners was magnified through the cross of Christ. But what was the original lyric? What did they want to change? When on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Because of the pushback from the composers, the committee eventually dropped the hymn from the hymnal. And this news was published nationally in church uh, uh, publishing companies and, and various people weighed in on the controversy. One PCUSA reverend in support of the lyric change said, that lyric, the wrath of God was satisfied, comes close to saying that God killed Jesus. The cross is not an instrument of God's wrath. The cross is not an instrument of God's wrath. This is this reverend's perspective. On the other end, a popular blogger out of Tennessee in support of the composers said that the committee's ruling was a sign that they were abandoning basic Christian doctrine. So what are we to make of this controversy? Is the cross an instrument of God's wrath? Did God kill Jesus? Does a two-word change to a hymn lyric really mean abandoning orthodox Christian faith? Well, as a matter of fact, it does. The satisfaction of God's wrath through the cross of Christ is paramount to biblical Christianity. This message is offensive to some, but we're going to see this morning from the very witness of Scripture that it is a necessary message. And this leads us to the main point of today's sermon text. If you're taking notes, you can find it in your bulletin. I might have confused Angela a little bit and said I was going to save it to the end. I'm not. Uh, so you can find it at the bottom of your page. God communicates through Isaiah's prophecy that Jesus Christ is the suffering servant who died in our place so that we can be reconciled to God. Jesus Christ is the suffering servant who died in our place so that we can be reconciled to God. Without Jesus, without his substitutionary death that satisfied God's wrath on our behalf, we would still be dead in sin. We would be absent of any hope of reconciliation with God. But because Jesus has come to serve as the suffering servant prophesied in Isaiah, we have an everlasting hope that surpasses all understanding. And this hope starts with realizing the nature of Jesus. Who was he that he's qualified to be our savior? And this is the first point in your notes. The nature of the servant the nature of the servant. Look again at Isaiah 52, 13. Isaiah grabs our attention. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. 
He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. So first we should ask, who is the servant Isaiah is speaking of? Well, the suffering servant, as he's known in Christian theology, is the subject of four songs spanning and sprinkling, sprinkled throughout Isaiah 42 to 53. In the first three songs, the servant is depicted as the chosen, spirit-filled, perfectly obedient servant of God who will cast the light of salvation onto the nations, onto Israel. He'll open the eyes of the blind and set prisoners free. He'll be honored by kings and princes. We even see a picture of a sword protruding from his mouth, showing the power of his word. The fourth and final servant song, this is the song we're in, it begins similarly with this theme of victory. My servant shall act wisely, he shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Certainly a person of unparalleled authority and honor is one who is high, lifted up, and exalted. And how would you expect someone to be depicted like this? I think of royalty. I even think of the ornate uh, stained glass you guys have here. That certainly is beautiful. But you think about royalty, robed in red linen, a jeweled crown on their head, a scepter in their hand, seated on a throne, higher than any noble or peasant who bows in homage at them. But how is this exalted servant depicted in Isaiah 52 and 3? Look at verse 14. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred, beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. How is the exalted servant depicted? Well, whoever looked at him was astonished. Not because he was beautiful. He was not looked at with awe and wonder, but because of his marred appearance. So marred, in fact, that we learn he was beyond human semblance. The suffering servant would be disfigured to the extent that he didn't even look human anymore. These descriptions point to the fact that this exalted servant will be a suffering servant. How is this not a contradiction? How can a suffering servant be exalted? Well, it's from this suffering state, we learn in verse 15, that he will sprinkle many nations. And because of this sprinkling, this cleansing and purifying of the nations, kings will shut their mouths because of him. Their jaws will be sealed shut in astonishment at the servant and the truth that he brings. A truth that will make them see and understand a totally new teaching they've never heard of or thought of before. And as these first three verses serve as an overarching view of the nature of the servant, beginning in chapter 53, we get a little more specific about him. Look at, look at Isaiah 53, 1. The servant's nature is such a paradox. Isaiah asks, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? 
It will take supernatural revelation to believe the message concerning this servant. It will take supernatural revelation to believe what the arm of the Lord or the the power of the Lord will do in and through him. For, verse 2, he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we would desire him. So what's Isaiah getting at with this plant imagery? Do we have any gardeners in the room? Any gardeners? No gardeners, wow. Pretty much everyone in Wellsboro is a gardener, even if you don't have a garden, so. Isaiah is pointing to the paradoxical, paradox nature of the servant and the unbelievable circumstances that will surround him. So to grow up like a young plant meant that the servant would be healthy and strong. Just like a, a young green plant or green tree is healthy and strong, you can bend it, but it won't break. And notice it says he grew up before him. Well, who is this servant growing up before? Well, if we were to look at the other servant songs, this servant is the servant of Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God of Israel. So this servant would grow up before God perfectly, and he would act as his servant perfectly. But his origin would come from an unexpected place. Just like a healthy root coming from dry and uncultivated ground is unexpected, the people of the suffering servant's generation would not expect him. As he would come from a place they never would have thought of. And therefore, the servant would be one without form or majesty. He wouldn't be anyone special. He would have no beauty that would be desired like royalty would. His demeanor would be so lowly, in fact, Isaiah prophesies that he will be rejected despite being the Lord's servant. Look at verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Picture you're walking down the main street of Sunbury. What is the main street of Sunbury? Is there one? Lovely. Picture you're walking down that street. I should have asked that before I started. And two vehicles pass by. One is a beautiful Ferrari. The other is a rusty, noisy, junky old truck. Both cars are going to draw your attention, but for different reasons. You know, the Ferrari will cause you to be in awe at its cost and its beauty. But when you see the nasty old truck, you're going to react with astonishment, not because you're excited about it, but because you're disgusted by it. The truck probably smells, it sounds annoying, it just looks awful. Though you'd expect an exalted servant to be like the Ferrari, attractive, beautiful, desirable, he was actually like the rusty, noisy old truck. Undesirable, rejected, despised. He was so despised that men would even hide their face from him, feeling ashamed as they looked at him. As our main point makes clear, Jesus Christ is this suffering servant. And he certainly fulfills these words, doesn't he? He was born of humble estate as the son of a lowly carpenter in the backwater town of Nazareth in the rural region of Galilee. He had no form or majesty that people should pay attention to him. 
He wasn't royalty. He wasn't a mighty soldier. His appearance wasn't pleasing to the human eye like a King Saul or a King David. He was not the type of savior the Jews expected. They wanted someone to free them from Roman oppression. Jesus couldn't do that with no authority or resources or power. How can a carpenter's son free us from Rome? And yet Jesus grew up before the Lord like a young plant. He was truly God and truly man and he lived a perfect life. He was the savior of Israel. The savior they needed. He was the savior they needed. Therefore, in light of his identity as one with God the Father and the Savior of Israel, he was despised and rejected by men. Just think of the sect of the Pharisees, how they hated Jesus. But it wasn't just the religious leaders that rejected him. Even his closest disciples would turn their face away from him in shame and abandon him during his arrest. Just think of Peter's denial when asked three times by the slave girl, did he know Jesus? I do not know the man. Church, why was it necessary for the Savior to be of this nature? Why wouldn't God send Jesus as a conquering king? Why did he come as a suffering servant? This leads us to our second point, the reason for the servant. The reason for the servant. Look at verse 4. Isaiah 53, 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We're going to stop there. Why was it necessary that Jesus came as a suffering servant? Well, we learn that Jesus bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. So what does that mean? Did Jesus just carry our emotional burdens while he was here on earth? I know these griefs and sorrows, they don't connotate sadness. But griefs and sorrows over the effects of our sin. Jesus came as the suffering servant because we are sinners before a holy God. And Isaiah clarifies this in verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Now these are pretty big words. What are our transgressions? What are our iniquities? Well, the reality is we have all transgressed or failed to adhere to God's commandments and therefore we are transgressors. Why does that matter? It's because we were made in the image and likeness of God he is the creator. We are his creatures. Therefore, whether we accept it or not, we are owned by him. We belong to him, and he has authority over us to tell us what we can and cannot do, how we should live. And the commandments God gives in his word reflect his very character. And we have all failed to keep them, and therefore, we have transgressed not just against God's commands but against God himself. We have rebelled against the very one who made us and sustains us. What about our iniquities? What are iniquities? 
Iniquities is kind of a synonym for sins. The sins we've committed against God incur guilt upon us. We cannot claim ignorance in our disobedience against God. We are not morally neutral. We are guilty before him because of our willful disobedience. And therefore, we deserve to suffer the penalty our sin deserves. Just in conscious torment in hell for all eternity. If you think you're generally a good person, you know, you've never stolen anything, you've never committed adultery, you've never murdered, consider the simile Isaiah uses in verse 6. All, all, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Instead of following God and keeping his commandments as we were created for, we have all strayed, living however and doing whatever we please. And even just consider the Ten Commandments. No one could ever say that they kept the Ten Commandments perfectly. And in James 2, we learn that whoever keeps the whole law but fails in just one point has become guilty of breaking the whole law. Just like Israel in the book of Judges, we pridefully do whatever is right in our own eyes with no regard for our creator. And perhaps you're thinking, well, okay, maybe I'm not perfect. But certainly I don't deserve hell. I'm not Adolf Hitler. I'm not Pol Pot. Let me ask you something, going back to the Ferrari and junky truck illustration. If I was to take a baseball bat and just destroy that truck, you probably wouldn't think much of it, would you? I mean, it's a pretty old truck. What's one more dent? But if I was to take a baseball bat to a brand new 2022 Ferrari, I would be thrown in prison immediately. Why? It's because the object of the crime was valuable. Our God is the only holy, only perfect, transcendent, all-powerful being in the universe. And he is infinitely more valuable than a Ferrari. Therefore, our sin against him, even small sins, deserves punishment. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2 says, you were dead, and Chapin opened this morning our meeting, our prayer meeting, with this text. Uh, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Why did Jesus come as the suffering servant? Because we're dead in sin and in need of salvation from our sin and the satisfaction of God's wrath. God cannot, he will not just sweep sins under the rug. That would just compromise his perfect justice. He must punish sin. And because of the depth and perversity of our sin, we cannot save ourselves from its consequences. We cannot do anything to please God. Because we'll learn in Isaiah 64 that our righteous deeds are even filthy rags before a holy God. Therefore, it was necessary for Jesus to come as the suffering servant to save us from our sin and the wrath of God that we deserve. 
It was necessary for Jesus to serve as our sacrificial substitute. How does Jesus do this? This leads us to our third point, the work of the servant. The work of the servant. What specific work did Jesus do as the suffering servant to save us from our sin? Let's just return to some verses we've already covered and consider the reason he came. Look again at verse 4. Isaiah 53, 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So what do we learn about the work of our Savior through these verses? Well, we read that he bore our sin and was stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Jesus was perfect, innocent before God. And of all the humans to ever live anywhere, Jesus was the only one to not deserve death. And it was because of this fact that he alone was able and worthy to act as our substitute. Where did this happen? Where was he bearing our sin and carrying our sorrows? Where was he pierced? Where was he crushed? He did these things on the cross. It was on the cross where Jesus was marred and deformed, not even recognizable as a human. It was on the cross that Jesus acted as our substitute who absorbed our sin in God's wrath. Returning to chapter 52 was the place that he was made high and lifted up. Jesus said in John 3, 14 to 15, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Chapin actually preached on this Old Testament passage Jesus references in Numbers 21 a couple of weeks ago. It was necessary that Jesus be lifted up. That he suffer so that our sins might be forgiven, our guilt, pardoned, and God's wrath satisfied. And Isaiah actually alludes to this in verse 10. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Now, some of you might be wondering, how is that right? How could God crush and put to grief his perfect son? How is this not, as some have called it, cosmic child abuse? Isaiah continued in verse 7. Look at verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. How is Christ's substitutionary atonement justified? It's because Jesus went willingly to the cross. He was oppressed and afflicted, but he didn't protest. Just as a sheep being led to death or sheep being sheared did not protest their masters, Jesus did not protest against the eternal plan of God to die for his people. 
He who knew no sin willingly became sin on our behalf to suffer the wrath of God and that we might be the righteousness of God. Jesus' suffering on the cross, both physically and spiritually, inevitably led to his death. Isaiah prophesied in verse 8, by oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for this generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? He died, stricken for the transgression of my people. They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. actually read about the fulfillment of this prophecy near the end of John's gospel. We read that Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man, and Nicodemus, a Pharisee, sympathetic to Jesus, took his body off the cross and buried him in a tomb Joseph owned. Jesus, the innocent son of man, the Lamb of God who John the Baptist proclaimed takes away the sins of the world, was buried in fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy and as proof of his atoning death. Now it may seem obvious as we prepare to worship our risen Savior next week. His death and burial is not the end of the story. Jesus didn't stay in the tomb on the third day. He rose. He rose victoriously. He has been exalted to his proper place, the right hand of God, and he is properly rewarded. And this is the final point in your notes. The reward of the servant. The reward of the servant. So we should ask, how is Jesus rewarded as the suffering servant who died in our place? Look again at verse 10. Verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. I was talking to Chapin before, and you could spend hours and hours picking through and considering the triumph and rewarding of our Lord Jesus. I want to just narrow it down to two for us this morning. First reward is that through Jesus' death, he successfully gave an offering to cleanse a people of their guilt. Satisfy God's wrath and make them offspring of God or children of God. Jesus' first reward is that he is given his bride, the church. He accounts us, his church, to be righteous Because he gives us his perfect righteousness in exchange for bearing our sin on the cross. And now that we have his righteousness, we are reconciled to God. Able to approach his throne with confidence. Because Jesus has gone before us. And even actively intercedes on our behalf before the Father. As the end of verse 12 alludes to. 
We do nothing to earn our renewed relationship with Jesus. Instead, we are given to him as his reward. And he gazes upon us and is satisfied. He looks at his offspring. His days are prolonged. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And we do nothing to earn our renewed relationship. We are given to him as his reward, as his people, to love and serve him. Not because we were extra special, not because we deserved it, but because God is gracious and Jesus deserves to be worshipped by us. The second, and I would argue greater, reward that Jesus gets by his humble suffering is his exaltation spoken of in Isaiah 52. We mustn't mistake our own salvation as paramount in the mind of God. First and foremost, he is concerned with his own glory. And God is glorified when Jesus is glorified. So how do we see Jesus' reward of exaltation and glory in these verses? We read that his days are prolonged. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. In Jesus' resurrection and ascension, his days are prolonged eternally. As he went to be with his father again, where he sovereignly rules and reigns even now until he returns. Jesus is bringing about the culmination of human history for the glory of his name. The Lord's eternal and sovereign will is prospering in his hand, even in the midst of what seems like a chaotic world. People are at war. Famine and disease are spreading. Yet God is sovereign. Jesus is ruling and reigning even now. And it's in this kingly stature that the beginning of verse 12, I think, is best understood. The ESV translates this, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Perhaps a better translation of the Hebrew, not saying this is wrong, certainly represents the text, but a a better translation may be that Jesus is divided a portion of the many. The many is the portion that he is divided. And he's divided a spoil that is the strong, This adheres to what we see in 53.12, that he is exalted above all and that kings will shut their mouths because of him. The Apostle Paul alludes to this in Philippians 2. And actually, this is the text that Chapin opened with. He didn't open with Ephesians. That's my apologies. Uh, Philippians 2. Why don't we turn there? Why don't we turn to Philippians 2? Please turn to Philippians 2 with me. Let's just look at this text. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Let's start in verse 5. We're going to see the humbling of Jesus, but then we're going to see his exaltation. Philippians 2 verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, because of his humility, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, 
so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Lord Jesus has rewarded a people and through his people he is glorified at the right hand of the Father. He is the name He has the name that is above every name and kings will shut their mouths because of him either in this life or when he returns. So we've learned a lot about Jesus this morning. We've learned about who he is, what he's done. What should we do about it? How does the prophecy in Isaiah 52 and 3 cause us to change in light of Christ's suffering servanthood? Well, first and foremost, Friend, if you are here and you do not know the Lord Jesus, this passage is for you to recognize the depth of your sin and to look to the Lord Jesus as your only hope in life and death who bore the sins of many on the cross. Even now, he's brought you here that you may hear the words of life that you would repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus. If you do know the Lord, praise God. How should this passage cause us to worship Christ more? How should our affections be deepened for Jesus? First, the exalted Lord Jesus lived the perfect life we refuse to live. He died as our substitute, enduring an equivalent of an eternity in hell for us. And he rose and he ascended to the Father. Is, do you marvel at Jesus when you read passages like this? Does it bring you to your knees in humility and long to, to worship him? Do you marvel at the God who is both, both just and the justifier of our souls for the ones who have faith? In light of that, I ask, who is it that you are seeking to exalt in either your ministry, your relationships? Are you seeking to exalt the Lord Jesus or is there a bout of pride in your heart? Are we walking in the path that Christ walked? The humble path, the suffering path. Because of what Christ has done, will we share the gospel with those who do not know the Lord Jesus. Because we see from this text, he alone saves us. Are we willing to preach the word to those who do not know him? Are we taking our sins seriously as believers? Seeing the great cost that Jesus went through. Are we willing to kill our sin and obey Every one of his commandments as the Spirit enables us. Brothers and sisters, I encourage you in the midst of those questions, remember to look to Christ in awe and worship him. If you're downtrodden or sorrowful in this moment, look to Christ. He died for you. As we prepare to respond in song to this Suffering, crucified, risen, ascended, exalted, Lord, let me pray. 
and then we will continue to worship. I do want to just say now, I'm going to be up front after. If you have any questions, please come and see me. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you alone are worthy to be praised. For you have sent your Son to suffer on our behalf. He obeyed you perfectly. As truly God and truly man, he was our substitute. He satisfied your wrath and bore our sins that we might be reconciled to you. Your Holy Spirit has come, regenerated our hearts that we would repent and believe in the gospel and enabled us to walk in obedience. So Lord, I pray after what we have seen and heard out of Isaiah 53, what we have believed, what we have seen about your arm, your powerful arm who has worked salvation for us, I pray that you would change us. For those who do not know you, that they would come to Christ now. Your spirit would work in them. You would call them. For those who do know you, in light of our reconciled relationship with you as your sons and daughters, co-heirs with Christ, your offspring, I pray that you would cause us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. Lord, do not allow this word to so easily escape our minds even today or as we walk this week. Recall it to mind that we would reflect on the sacrifice of our servant, or of, of, of your servant, of our Savior, and it would cause us to change. Your Spirit would cause us to change, and we would be refreshed, we would worship you, and we would obey you. Thank you for Sunbury City Church, these saints here who are longing to see you magnified in their community. Help them to do it. Help us to do it in Wellsboro. We love you, Lord, and we praise you for you are good and your love endures forever. We see it in the satisfaction of your wrath through your son. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.